Chapter Twenty Four of the Alhambra: A Series of Tales and Sketches of the Moors and Spaniards by Washington Irving. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four: Legend of Prince Almond Al Kamal, or the Pilgrim of Love, Part Two. The prince sallied forth from Sevilla, sought his fellow traveller the owl, who was still dozing in the hollow tree and set off for Cordova. He approached it along hanging gardens and orange and citron groves, overlooking the fair valley of the Guadalquivir. When arrived at its gates, the owl flew up to a dark hole in the wall, and the prince proceeded in quest of the palm-tree planted in days of yore by the great Abderrahman. It stood in the midst of the great court of the mosque, towering from amidst orange and cypress trees. Dervishes and fakirs were seated in groups under the cloisters of the court, and many of the faithful were performing their ablutions at the fountains before entering the mosque. At the foot of the palm-tree was a crowd listening to the words of one who appeared to be talking with great volubility. This, said the prince to himself, must be the great traveller who is to give me tidings of the unknown princess. He mingled in the crowd, but was astonished to perceive that they were all listening to a parrot, who, with his bright green coat, pragmatical eye, and consequential top-knot, had the air of a bird on excellent terms with himself. "'How is this?' said the prince to one of the bystanders that so many grave persons can be delighted with the garrulity of a chattering bird. "'You know not of whom you speak,' said the other. "'This parrot is a descendant of the famous parrot of Persia, renowned for his story-telling talent. He has all the learning of the East at the tip of his tongue, and can quote poetry as fast as he can talk. He has visited various foreign courts, where he has been considered an oracle of erudition. He has been a universal favourite also with the fair sex, who have a vast admiration for erudite parrots that can quote poetry. Enough, said the prince, I will have some private talk with this distinguished traveller. He sought a private interview, and expounded the nature of his errand. He had scarcely mentioned it when the parrot burst into a fit of dry, rickety laughter that absolutely brought tears in his eyes. Uh, "'Excuse my mirth,' said he, "'but the mere mention of love always sets me laughing.' The prince was shocked at this ill-timed merriment. "'Is not love,' said he, "'the great mystery of nature, the secret principle of life, the universal bond of sympathy?' A fig's end, cried the parrot, interrupting him. Prithee, where hast thou learnt this sentimental jargon? Trust me, love is quite out of vogue. One never hears of it in the company of wits and people of refinement. The prince sighed as he recalled the different language of his friend the dove. But this parrot, thought he, has lived about court. He affects the wit and the fine gentleman. He knows nothing of the thing called love. 
Unwilling to provoke any more ridicule of the sentiment which filled his heart, he now directed his inquiries to the immediate purport of his visit. " Tell me," said he, " most accomplished parrot, thou who hast every where been admitted to the most secret bowers of beauty, hast thou in the course of thy travels met with the original of this portrait ?" The parrot took the picture in his claw, turned his head from side to side, and examined it curiously with either eye. " Upon my honour," said he, " a very pretty face, very pretty ; but then one sees so many pretty women in one s travels, that one can hardly but hold bless me ! now I look at it again sure enough this is the princess Aldegonda ! How could I forget one that is so prodigious a favourite with me ?" "The princess Aldegonda !" echoed the prince, " and where is she to be found ?" "Softly, softly," said the parrot, "easier to be found than gained. She is the only daughter of the Christian king who reigns at Toledo, and is shut up from the world until her seventeenth birthday, on account of some prediction of those meddlesome fellows the astrologers. You ll not get a sight of her no mortal man can see her. I was admitted to her presence to entertain her, and I assure you, on the word of a parrot who has seen the world, I have conversed with much sillier princesses in my time." "A word in confidence, my dear parrot," said the prince. " I am heir to a kingdom, and shall one day sit upon a throne. I see that you are a bird of parts, and understand the word. Help me to gain possession of this princess, and I will advance you to some distinguished post about court." " With all my heart," said the parrot, " but let it be a sinecure if possible, for we wits have a great dislike to labour." Arrangements were promptly made. The prince sallied forth from Cordova through the same gate by which he had entered, called the owl down from the hole in the wall, introduced him to his new travelling companion as a brother savant, and away they set off on their journey. They travelled much more slowly than accorded with the impatience of the prince, but the parrot was accustomed to high life, and did not like to be disturbed early in the morning. The owl, on the other hand, was for sleeping at midday, and lost a great deal of time by his long siestas. His antiquarian taste also was in the way, for he insisted on pausing and inspecting every ruin and had long legendary tales to tell about every old tower and castle in the country. The prince had supposed that he and the parrot, being both birds of learning, would delight in each other's society, but never had he been more mistaken. They were eternally bickering. The one was a wit, the other a philosopher. The parrot quoted poetry was critical on new readings and eloquent on small points of erudition. The owl treated all such knowledge as trifling, and relished nothing but metaphysics.
Then the parrot would sing songs and repeat bon mots, and crack jokes upon his solemn neighbour, and laugh outrageously at his own wit ; all which the owl considered a grievous invasion of his dignity, and would scowl and sulk and swell, and sit silent for a whole day together. The prince heeded not the wranglings of his companions, being wrapped up in the dreams of his own fancy, and the contemplation of the portrait of the beautiful princess. In this way they journeyed through the stern passes of the Sierra Marena, across the sunburnt plains of La Mancha and Castile, and along the banks of the Golden Tagus, which winds its wizard mazes over one half of Spain and Portugal. At length they came in sight of a strong city with walls and towers built on a rocky promontory, round the foot of which the Tagus circled with brawling violence. Behold, exclaimed the owl, the ancient and renowned city of Toledo, a city famous for its antiquities. Behold those venerable domes and towers, hoary with time and clothed with legendary grandeur, in which so many of my ancestors have meditated. Pish! cried the parrot, interrupting his solemn antiquarian rapture. What have we to do with antiquities and legends and your ancestors? Behold, what is more to the purpose, behold the abode of youth and beauty. Behold, at length, O prince, the abode of your long-sought princess. The prince looked in the direction indicated by the parrot, and beheld, in a delightful green meadow on the banks of the Tagus, a stately palace rising from amidst the bowers of a delicious garden. It was just such a place as had been described by the dove as the residence of the original of the picture. He gazed at it with a throbbing heart. Perhaps at this moment, thought he, the beautiful princess is sporting beneath those shady bowers, or pacing with delicate step those stately terraces, or reposing beneath those lofty roofs. As he looked more narrowly, he perceived that the walls of the garden were of great height, so as to defy access, while numbers of armed guards patrolled around them. The prince turned to the parrot. O oh, most accomplished of birds, said he, thou hast the gift of human speech. Hie thee to yon garden. Seek the idol of my soul, and tell her that Prince Ahmed, a pilgrim of love, and guided by the stars, has arrived in quest of her on the flowery banks of the Tagus. The parrot, proud of his embassy, flew away to the garden mounted above its lofty walls, and after soaring for a time over the lawns and groves, alighted on the balcony of a pavilion that overhung the river. Here, looking in at the casement, he beheld the princess reclining on a couch, with her eyes fixed on a paper, while tears gently stole after each other down her pallid cheek. Pluming his wings for a moment, adjusting his bright green coat, and elevating his top-knot, 
the parrot perched himself beside her with a gallant air ; then, assuming a tenderness of tone, " Dry thy tears, most beautiful of princesses," said he, " I come to bring solace to thy heart." The princess was startled on hearing a voice, but turning and seeing nothing but a little green coated bird bobbing and bowing before her, " Alas ! what solace canst thou yield," said she, " seeing thou art but a parrot !" The parrot was nettled at the question. " I have consoled many beautiful ladies in my time," said he, " but let that pass. At present I come ambassador from a royal prince. Know that Ahmed, the prince of Granada, has arrived in quest of thee, and is encamped even now on the flowery banks of the Tagus." The eyes of the beautiful princess sparkled at these words, even brighter than the diamonds in her coronet. " O sweetest of parrots," cried she, " joyful indeed are thy tidings for I was faint and weary, and sick almost unto death, with doubt of the constancy of Ahmed. Hie thee back, and tell him that the words of his letter are engraven in my heart, and his poetry has been the food of my soul. Tell him, however, that he must prepare to prove his love by force of arms. To morrow is my seventeenth birthday, when the king, my father, holds a great tournament. Several princes are to enter the lists, and my hand is to be the prize of the victor." The parrot again took wing, and rustling through the groves, flew back to where the prince awaited his return. The rapture of Ahmed, on finding the original of his adored portrait, and finding her kind and true, can only be conceived by those favoured mortals who have had the good fortune to realise day-dreams and turn shadows into substance. Still there was one thing that alloyed his transport, this impending tournament. In fact, the banks of the Tagus were already glittering with arms and resounding with trumpets of the various knights who with proud retinues were prancing on towards Toledo to attend the ceremonial. The same star that had controlled the destiny of the prince had governed that of the princess, and until her seventeenth birthday she had been shut up from the world to guard her from the tender passion. The fame of her charms, however, had been enhanced rather than obscured by this seclusion. Several powerful princes had contended for her alliance, and her father, who was a king of wondrous shrewdness to avoid making enemies by showing partiality, had referred them to the arbitrament of arms. Among the rival candidates were several renowned for strength and prowess. What a predicament for the unfortunate Ahmed, unprovided as he was with weapons, and unskilled in the exercises of chivalry. Luckless prince that I am, said he, to have been brought up in seclusion under the eye of a philosopher. Of what avail are algebra and philosophy in affairs of love? 
Alas, Ebon Bonabbon, why hast thou neglected to instruct me in the management of arms ? Upon this the owl broke silence, prefacing his harangue with a pious ejaculation, for he was a devout Mussulman. Allah Akbar, God is great, exclaimed he. In his hands are all secret things, he alone governs the destiny of princes. Know, O prince, that this land is full of mysteries, hidden from all but those who, like myself, can grope after knowledge in the dark. Know that in the neighboring mountains there is a cave, and in that cave there is an iron table, and on that table lies a suit of magic armor, and beside that table stands a spell-bound steed, which have been shut up there for many generations. The prince stared with wonder, while the owl, blinking his huge round eyes, and erecting his horns, proceeded. Many years since I accompanied my father to these parts on a tour of his estates, and we sojourned in that cave, and thus became I acquainted with the mystery. It is a tradition in our family, which I have heard from my grandfather when I was yet a very little owlet, that this armor belonged to a Moorish magician who took refuge in this cavern when Toledo was captured by the Christians, and died here, leaving his steed and weapons under a mystic spell, never to be used but by a Moslem, and by him only from sunrise to midday. In that interval, whoever uses them will overthrow every opponent. Enough! Let us seek this cave! exclaimed Ahmed. Guided by his legendary mentor, the prince found the cavern, which was in one of the wildest recesses of those rocky cliffs which rose around Toledo. None but the mousing eye of an owl, or an antiquary, could have discovered the entrance to it. A sepulchral lamp of everlasting oil shed a solemn light through the place. On an iron table in the centre of the cavern lay the magic armor, against it leaned the lance, and beside it stood an Arabian steed caparisoned for the field, but motionless as a statue. The armor was bright and unsullied, as it had gleamed in days of old, the steed in as good condition as if just from the pasture, and when Ahmed laid his hand upon his neck, he pawed the ground and gave a loud neigh of joy that shook the walls of the cavern. Thus provided with horse to ride and weapon to wear, the prince determined to defy the field at the impending tourney. The eventful morning arrived. The lists for the combat were prepared in the vega, or plain, just below the cliff-built walls of Toledo. Here were erected stages and galleries for the spectators, covered with rich tapestry and sheltered from the sun by silken awnings. All the beauties of the land were assembled in those galleries, while below pranced plumed knights, with their pages and esquires, among whom figured conspicuously the princes 
who were to contend in the tourney. All the beauties of the land, however, were eclipsed when the Princess Aldegonda appeared in the royal pavilion, and for the first time broke forth upon the gaze of an admiring world. A murmur of wonder ran through the crowd at her transcending loveliness, and the princes who were candidates for her hand, merely on the faith of her reported charms, now felt tenfold ardor for the conflict. The princess, however, had a troubled look. The color came and went from her cheek, and her eye wandered with a restless and unsatisfied expression over the plumed throng of knights. The trumpets were about sounding for the encounter when a herald announced the arrival of a stranger knight, and Ahmed rode into the field. The steeled helmet studded with gems rose above his turban, his cuirass was embossed with gold, his scimitar and dagger were of the workmanship of fay, and flamed with precious stones. A round shield was at his shoulder, and in his hand he bore the lance of charmed virtue. The caparison of his Arabian was richly embroidered and swept the ground, and the proud animal pranced and snuffed the air, and neighed with joy at once more beholding the array of arms. The lofty and graceful demeanor of the prince struck every eye, and when his appellation was announced, the Pilgrim of Love, a universal flutter and agitation prevailed amongst the fair dames in the galleries. When Ahmed presented himself at the lists, however, they were closed against him. None but princes, he was told, were admitted to the contest. He declared his name and rank. Still worse, he was a Moslem, and could not engage in a tourney where the hand of a Christian princess was the prize. The rival princes surrounded him with haughty and menacing aspects, and one of insolent demeanour and Herculean frame sneered at his light and youthful form, and scoffed at his amorous appellation. The ire of the prince was roused. He defied his rival to the encounter. They took distance, wheeled, and charged. At the first touch of the magic lance, the brawny scoffer was tilted from his saddle. Here the prince would have paused, but alas, he had to deal with a demoniac horse and armor. Once in action, nothing could control them. The Arabian steed charged into the thickest of the throng, the lance overturned everything that presented. The gentle prince was carried pell-mell through the field, strewing it with high and low, gentle and simple, and grieving at his own involuntary exploits. The king stormed and raged at this outrage on his subjects and his guests. He ordered out all his guards. They were unhorsed as fast as they came up. The king threw off his robes, grasped buckler and lance, and rode forth to awe the stranger with the presence of majesty itself. Alas, majesty fared no better than the vulgar. 
the steed and lance were no respecters of persons. To the dismay of Ahmed, he was borne full tilt against the king, and in a moment the royal heels were in the air, and the crown was rolling in the dust. At this moment the sun reached the meridian. The magic spell resumed its power. The Arabian steeds scoured across the plain, leaped the barrier, plunged into the Tagus, swam its raging current, bore the prince, breathless and amazed, to the cavern, and resumed his station like a statue beside the iron table. The prince dismounted right gladly, and replaced the armor, to abide the further decrees of fate. Then, seating himself in the cavern, he ruminated on the desperate state to which this bedeviled steed and armor had reduced him. Never should he dare to show his face in Toledo after inflicting such disgrace upon its chivalry, and such an outrage on its king. What, too, would the princess think of so rude and riotous an achievement? Full of anxiety, he sent forth his winged messengers to gather tidings. The parrot resorted to all the public places and crowded resorts of the city, and soon returned with a world of gossip. All Toledo was in consternation. The princess had been borne off senseless to the palace. The tournament had ended in confusion. Everyone was talking of the sudden apparition, prodigious exploits, and strange disappearance of the Moslem knight. Some pronounced him a Moorish magician. Others thought him a demon who had assumed a human shape. While others related traditions of enchanted warriors hidden in the caves of the mountains, and thought it might be one of these who had made a sudden eruption from his den. All agreed that no mere ordinary mortal could have wrought such wonders or unhorsed such accomplished and stalwart Christian warriors. The owl flew forth at night and hovered about the dusky city, perching on the roofs and chimneys. He then wheeled his flight up to the royal palace, which stood on the rocky summit of Toledo, and went prowling about its terraces and battlements, eavesdropping at every cranny, and glaring in with his big goggling eyes at every window where there was a light, so as to throw two or three maids of honor into fits. It was not until the gray dawn began to peer above the mountains that he returned from his mousing expedition and related to the prince what he had seen. As I was prying about one of the loftiest towers of the palace, said he, I beheld through a casement a beautiful princess. She was reclining on a couch, with attendants and physicians around her, but she would none of their ministry and relief. When they retired, I beheld her draw forth a letter from her bosom, and read, and kiss it, and give way to loud lamentations, at which, philosopher as I am, I could not but be greatly moved. The tender heart of Ahmed was distressed at these tidings. 
too true were thy words, O sage Eban Bonabon, cried he. Care and sorrow and sleepless nights are the lot of lovers. Allah preserve the princess from the blighting influence of this thing called love. Further intelligence from Toledo corroborated the report of the owl. The city was a prey to uneasiness and alarm. The princess was conveyed to the highest tower of the palace, every avenue to which was strongly guarded. In the meantime, a devouring melancholy had seized upon her, of which no one could divine the cause. She refused food, and turned a deaf ear to every consolation. The most skilful physicians had essayed their art in vain. It was thought some magic spell had been practised upon her, and the king made proclamation, declaring that whoever should effect her cure should receive the richest jewel in the royal treasury. When the owl, who was dozing in a corner, heard of this proclamation, he rolled his large eyes and looked more mysterious than ever. "'Allah Akbar!' exclaimed he. Happy the man that shall effect that cure, should he but know what to choose from the royal treasury. What mean you, most reverend owl? said Ahmed. Hearken, O prince, to what I shall relate. We owls, you must know, are a learned body, and much given to dark and dusty research. During my late prowling at night about the domes and turrets of Toledo, I discovered a college of antiquarian owls who hold their meetings in a great vaulted tower where the royal treasure is deposited. Here they were discussing the forms and inscriptions and designs of ancient gems and jewels and of golden and silver vessels heaped up in the treasury, the fashion of every country and age. But Mostly they were interested about certain relics and talismans that have remained in the treasury since the time of Roderick the Goth. Among these was a box of shittim wood, secured by bands of steel of oriental workmanship, and inscribed with mystic characters known only to the learned few. This box and its inscription had occupied the college for several sessions, and had caused much long and grave dispute. At the time of my visit, a very ancient owl, who had recently arrived from Egypt, was seated on the lid of the box, lecturing upon the inscription, and proved from it that the coffer contained the silken carpet of the throne of Solomon the Wise, which doubtless had been brought to Toledo by the Jews, who took refuge there after the downfall of Jerusalem. When the owl had concluded his antiquarian harangue, the prince remained for a time absorbed in thought. I have heard, said he, from the sage Ibn Bonabon, of the wonderful properties of that talisman, which disappeared at the fall of Jerusalem, and was supposed to be lost to mankind. Doubtless it remains a sealed mystery to the Christians of Toledo. If I can get possession of that carpet, my fortune is secure. 
The next day the prince laid aside his rich attire, and arrayed himself in the simple garb of an Arab of the desert. He dyed his complexion to a tawny hue, and no one could have recognized in him the splendid warrior who had caused such admiration and dismay at the tournament. With staff in hand and scrip by his side, and a small pastoral reed, he repaired to Toledo, and presenting himself at the gate of the royal palace, announced himself as a candidate for the reward offered for the cure of the princess. The guards would have driven him away with blows. "'What can a vagrant Arab like thyself pretend to do?' said they, in a case where the most learned of the land have failed. The king, however, overheard the tumult, and ordered the Arab to be brought into his presence. "'Most potent king,' said Ahmed, "'you behold before you a Bedouin Arab, the greater part of whose life has been passed in the solitudes of the desert. Those solitudes, it is well known, are the haunts of demons and evil spirits who beset us poor shepherds in our lonely watchings, enter into and possess our flocks and herds, and sometimes render even the patient camel furious. Against these our counter-charm is music, and we have legendary airs handed down from generation to generation that we chant and pipe to cast forth these evil spirits. I am of a gifted line, and possess this power in its fullest force. If it be any evil influence of the kind that holds a spell over thy daughter, I pledge my head to free her from its sway. The king, who was a man of understanding, and knew the wonderful secrets possessed by the Arabs, was inspired with hope by the confident language of the prince. He conducted him immediately to the lofty tower secured by several doors, in the summit of which was the chamber of the princess. The windows opened upon a terrace with balustrades, commanding a view over Toledo and all the surrounding country. The windows were darkened, for the princess lay within, a prey to a devouring grief that refused all alleviation. The prince seated himself on the terrace, and performed several wild Arabian airs on his pastoral pipe, which he had learnt from his attendants in the Henrelief at Granada. The princess continued insensible, and the doctors who were present shook their heads and smiled with incredibility and contempt. At length the prince laid aside the reed, and to a simple melody chanted the amatory verses of the letter which had declared his passion. The princess recognized the strain. A fluttering joy stole to her heart. She raised her head and listened. Tears rushed to her eyes and streamed down her cheeks. Her bosom rose and fell with a tumult of emotions. She would have asked for the minstrel to be brought into her presence, but maiden coyness held her silent. The king read her wishes, and at his command Ahmed was conducted into the chamber. The lovers were discreet, 
They but exchanged glances, yet those glances spoke volumes. Never was triumph of music more complete. The rose had returned to the soft cheek of the princess, the freshness to her lip, and the dewy light to her languishing eye. All the physicians present stared at each other with astonishment. The king regarded the Arab minstrel with admiration, mixed with awe. Wonderful youth, exclaimed he, thou shalt henceforth be the first physician of my court, and no other prescription will I take but thy melody. For the present, receive thy reward, the most precious jewel in my treasury. O king, replied Ahmed, I care not for silver or gold or precious stones. One relic hast thou in thy treasury, handed down from the Moslems who once owned Toledo. A box of sandalwood containing a silken carpet. Give me that box, and I am content. All present were surprised at the moderation of the Arab, and still more when the box of sandalwood was brought and the carpet drawn forth. It was of fine green silk, covered with Hebrew and Chaldaic characters. The court physicians looked at each other, shrugged their shoulders, and smiled at the simplicity of this new practitioner, who could be content with so paltry a fee. This carpet, said the prince, once covered the throne of Solomon the wise. It is worthy of being placed beneath the feet of beauty. So saying, he spread it on the terrace beneath an ottoman that had been brought forth for the princess. Then, seating himself at her feet, Who, said he, shall counteract what is written in the book of fate? Behold, the prediction of the astrologers verified. Know, O king, that your daughter and I have long loved each other in secret. Behold in me the pilgrim of love. These words were scarcely from his lips, when the carpet rose in the air, bearing off the prince and princess. The king and the physicians gazed after it with open mouths and straining eyes, until it became a little speck on the white bosom of a cloud and then disappeared in the blue vault of heaven. The king, in a rage, summoned his treasurer. How is this, said he, that thou hast suffered an infidel to get possession of such a talisman? Alas, sire, we knew not its nature, nor could we decipher the inscription of the box. If it be indeed the carpet of the throne of the wise Solomon, it is possessed of magic power, and can transport its owner from place to place through the air. The king assembled a mighty army, and set off for Granada in pursuit of the fugitives. His march was long and toilsome. Encamping in the Vega, he sent a herald to demand restitution of his daughter. The king himself came forth with all his court to meet him. In the king he beheld the Arab minstrel, for Ahmed had succeeded to the throne on the death of his father, and the beautiful Aldegonda was his sultana. The Christian king was easily pacified when he found that his daughter was suffered to continue in her faith, 
not that he was particularly pious, but religion is always a point of pride and etiquette with princes. Instead of bloody battles there was a succession of feasts and rejoicings, after which the king returned well pleased to Toledo, and the youthful couple continued to reign as happily as wisely in the Alhambra. It is proper to add that the owl and the parrot had severally followed the prince by easy stages to Granada, the former travelling by night and stopping at the various hereditary possessions of his family, the latter figuring in the gay circles of every town and city on his route. Ahmed gratefully requited the services which they had rendered him on his pilgrimage. He appointed the owl his prime minister, the parrot his master of ceremonies. It is needless to say that never was a realm more sagely administered or a court conducted with more exact punctilio. End of chapter 24, part 2